Welcome to Season 8 of the Art of Teaching podcast. My name is Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. Before we get started with our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the Darawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording, and I'd like to pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I respect and honour Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Elders past, present and future, and I acknowledge the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on this land. Ray Boyd has 32 years of experience working in the public education system, including 18 years as an educational leader. In 2014, Ray was named WA's Primary Principal of the Year. He is dedicated to improving educational outcomes for all students and is passionate about promoting professional growth through instructional rounds and individual teacher coaching. Ray has a clear vision for his school and targets professional learning where it matters most, on curriculum and assessment. He leads by example and is committed to enhancing educational opportunities for all students. I hope that you get as much out of this discussion as I did. Please enjoy. Ray, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time. Where are you phoning in from? Uh, phoning in from Perth, Western Australia, up in uh, a new, newish suburb in Dayton, Brabham-White. But it's my pleasure, Matthew. I've had a look at the people that you've actually spoken to, and I'm quite humbled that you thought you'd give me a call. Oh, that's lovely. It, it's so great that it's not just my mum listening. So thank you for, uh, uh, thanks for taking the time. And uh, yeah, hugely grateful um, as I said before we hit record, that you would uh, that you would talk to me today. Um, quite possibly the most important question of our interview, um, what's your coffee order for when I can finally jet over to WA and take you out for a spot of brekkie? Medium flat white, no okay. brainer. Fantastic. Um, is there a book uh, that you have read? It could be uh, in terms of education, it could be much more broadly than that, uh, that's caused you to uh, stop and reconsider a few things in your life. Yeah, there was actually, but it was given to me by, by my dad. Uh, it was, I think it's 1968. Eric Van Danigan's Chariots of the Gods was a book that challenged me a little bit. Um, obviously, I was in my early, late teen years. So that was a book I found rather fascinating and quite interesting. Just okay. a different way of looking at things like and things. Um, a lot of which is currently being discussed on um, Discovery Channels and things like that at the moment. So that was certainly a book. There's plenty of others, but that was certainly a book that stuck with me. Fantastic. Are you an avid uh, reader outside of your uh, books to do with your profession or, uh, yeah? I am now. Uh, I was a reluctant reader in my earlier years. Uh, I worked on the wheat bins, which was rather a tedious job because we just watched wheat go down a, a line or empty trucks. And my dad threw me a Wilbur Smith book. Right. When I was about 18, stuck into that, and I got hooked on reading. It wasn't until 2001 I started to get into the educational reading, but I try to read as much as I can because it helps me keep on top of things and, and it gives me some broader perspectives and challenges some of the ideas that I have or strengthens some of the ideas I have. So I actually, I like reading. It's just a good way of doing things. And how on earth do you uh, do you find the time? I mean, we'll get into this um, a little later, but I know you're in the middle of a new school build. Uh, you're a, a school principal. Uh, I'm sure you got a lot going on. Uh, when you get home, don't you just want to turn the TV off and relax? Uh, how on earth do you find the time to uh, to open a book? 
I do. Um, I cheat sometimes by listening to podcasts while I'm driving between work. When I was working in the country uh, and doing some some of my distance running, a lot of the time was when I was spending in the car. You got to do something. You can listen to so much music, but a podcast or listening to an audio book is such a great way of getting information in. Yeah, listen to it again. The page back. When I was uh, in my distance years, when I was doing some distance running and we travel interstate or internationally, what are you going to do on a plane? Again, there's only so many videos you can watch. So a book was an easy thing to read. Yeah. And doing my doctorate and math forced me to read as well. So it's yeah. just, it's a chance to, do. Matthew, that's the big thing about it. You create your own, own voices in your head. Absolutely. And I, I, I'm 88, so reading's a bonus. It's one of those few times I try and sit down and actually concentrate. Fantastic. And, and, um, what is it about distance running uh, that that you like? The solitude, the chance to think. Again, uh, when I was growing up, I probably would have been, if it was a, a thing back then, ADHD, but fear mm-hmm. of my father, fear of not letting anyone know that I've done something wrong, sort of kept, kept you in line as a kid back in when I was growing up. Yeah. But that chance to, to do, I learned through distance running, what you put in is what you get back. So matching, obviously, with my father's work ethic and what I got off him was, okay, you know, distance running something where I don't depend on other people. I can train. I can get out. But I like company. We run in groups. But you're still you're doing your own thing and you get to set your own benchmark and work at your own standard. So it translated really well into education in, in the sense of lessons you learn from from sport and translating that into life. Yeah. Um, I, I... I, I love running as well. Um, I, I'm proud to have done a number of um, marathons and, and and for some reason I signed up for an ultra marathon a number of years ago um, and oh. realised uh, just how far it was and just how humbling it is um, if you don't train. Um, and so uh, that was a really wonderful, and I, I did train for the ultra, but um, it's been a, sort of a long time between marathons with COVID and so on and so forth. And I, I really agree with what you're saying. Like it, it really is about um, what you put in. And if you don't train, if you don't put in the work, uh, especially in distance running, running it's um, incredibly humbling uh, because it doesn't matter where you're from, what you look like, how much money you earn, where you live, all of that kind of stuff. If you haven't put the the hours in on the track or hours on the trail, uh, you, you very quickly uh, become humbled. Uh, would, would Would you agree with that? I would agree with everything you just said. It's yeah. very much an equal sport. You often find in competitions at, when you start to get to a high level, everyone's putting in the same amount of effort mm. and talent to some gets you so far. One of the things that I noticed as a younger runner is there were athletes who were more talented than me, but they didn't put the work in. So right. when it suddenly hard, it's like this, I live in this space all my life, hard work. So now we're playing in a, in a field where I can play around because I know what hard work is, but you're spot on. Everyone standing on that start line has done the work to get there. And it's one of those things, the marathon, it doesn't matter how much work you do in training or preparing for a marathon, and particularly more so in the ultras, at some point, it's going to get really hard. And yeah. it comes down to a bit of a game and that ability to just push on and get it finished. Yeah. Uh, and there's nothing, as you know, finishing is the best experience. It's like, oh. yes, I've done it. I've yeah, absolutely. And would you say you are more, uh, in terms of running, uh, more mentally tough or physically fit? Probably more mentally tough. Mm. The physical fit, yes, you get very fit, as you well know. You do get very fit. But fitness only gets you so far. There is a 
time in every race where you have to dig. And I think, and I'm not saying I'm great at it, there's people that are a lot better, but that ability to go, right, we we actually need to nut through this. We're not going to die. Mm-hmm. It's uncomfortable. Let's just get in that space. And that, that saying that I just said, it's uncomfortable, that's something I've translated into coaching and we we talk when we deal about change in schools. It's getting comfortable being uncomfortable mm. and that's that's where that mentality comes into play. Yes, it is uncomfortable, but it's not going to kill you. Yeah, I think that's really important and, and I love that you've made that link uh, between something that you're doing external to school to something which is obviously very related to school in, in terms of your coaching. And is there any sort of, are the lessons that you that, that you bring in from uh, sort of physical activity or, or or running long distance that you think have paid dividends in terms of your professional life? You see, uh, well, there's, there's work sort very of hard, of course. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that ability to to trust other people. When you we've run in, I've run in some relay teams where we're in a team, so it's important that I finish my leg so yeah. that the next person can start theirs, and yeah. that translates something I've always told my boys and again it comes from my father if you start something make sure you finish it now in a relay team if I don't finish my leg the next guy can't get on with his leg so if I'm having a tough time all I have to do is get to the get to the changeover and then someone else can step in out it's that understanding you have a part to play it's not the whole part and again that then ties into that notion of belonging and and um a, a section I read from a book, The Eleven Rings, Phil Jackson, mm-hmm. the notion of Ubuntu, I am because we are. So it's not that we're a, I'm a great runner. It's that we have a great group of people that enable us to be a great team on the sporting field. Yeah. The same thing in a school. I'm not great, but collectively we make greatness. And that that's another thing that I've learned from sport. Yeah, I, I think that's so important, Ray, and there, there's so much in that. That's almost a, a whole separate uh, podcast episode in itself, lessons uh, le- lessons for teachers uh, from running experiences. I think that would be a very interesting uh, discussion. Um, Ray, I'm just wondering, um, and you talked about it uh, briefly, you touched on it briefly, what are some of the things that you're most grateful for um, from your parents? And also, how has being a parent changed you? You mentioned your boys uh, just before. Well, probably my folks separated when I was in year three and we lived with my, my old man. Um, probably the thing I'm grateful for my father is that he taught me about the importance of work ethic, the, mm-hmm. the importance of finishing. Um, and I probably didn't appreciate it so much until I got older. But obviously when you're little, you see your dad, you see your mum. I could see how much work dad was doing and it wasn't until I got older I actually appreciated what he did to yeah. give us what he had. Um, and every parent, I believe, every parent tries to give their kids a little more than they had. And mm. dad didn't have a lot, didn't have a lot. But that work ethic was a big one. And that's something that I've passed on to my boys. Or like, I think I have passed on to my boys. Yeah. But there's just, just things like the effort you put in is the effort you get back. Uh, make sure whatever you start, something you finish it. So my boys have always lived with that. If they joined a sporting team for the season, then they were committed to that team for that season, whether they liked it or not. They'd bought into the team and they had to see the season out. Yeah. Uh, and my boys have always, we start something, Dad, we finish it. Yeah. And it's about we'll get get there. doesn't matter how pretty it is as long as you get to the end of the journey, you say, I started, I finished it, maybe I won't do it again, but maybe there's a few things I could learn from that and, and what can I learn from it? Because even a bad experience is still a good experience if you reflect on it. And yeah. that's jumping back to the run or you'd appreciate how much thinking do you do when you're out running for miles and miles 
pulse. There's only so many half songs you can sing in your head. Oh, so yeah. it's a chance to. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I think it's so important. Um, Ray, for those people that that aren't aware of your work, and we will, uh, I promise, we will get into it in a moment. Um, uh, can you just give us a brief history uh, of your career in education, and how did you get to be kind of where you are today? I mean, you've received n- numerous accolades for um uh for your principalship and and, and so on and so forth. And ha- but how did you get to where you are today, and what kind of motivates you? Um, well, motivates me is an easy one. It's to do, again, comes from my father. If you're going to do something, do it to the best of your abilities. Do it well. Yeah. Uh, well, Dad's probably said, if you're not, if you're not going to have a crack at it, mate, don't waste people's time. So I've probably sugarcoated that era <laughs> of messaging. Father. Um, but I went through, we started in Port Moresby. Obviously, Dad was an architectural draftsman and we, I started my formative years over in Port Moresby at Gordon International Primary School and came back to Western Australia in year three at Camboon and, and just met some really lovely people in the sense that my year five teacher, Greg Bryce, who I tracked down when I became a deputy principal, he was just such a cool guy. He surfed, he played the guitar. I thought, you know what, that being a teacher, that's a pretty cool gig if that's if that's what you want to aspire to be at. Hmm. Um, so I blame Greg for getting me interested in teaching and then, in high school, I bumped into a lady called Margaret Harris in year eight. And she wow. had actually became my coach for distance running. And we, we, she took me to state titles, international races, all sorts of things. We did amazing things together. But again, a teacher had a significant influence on my life. So that was something that I thought that would actually be quite interesting. I like phys ed. I'd let's become a phys ed teacher. Let's get into that. Went through West Australian College of Advanced Education, as it was known back in the 1880s. Uh, sorry, 1980s, I'm not that old, um, and qualified and started teaching at Balcata Primary School in 1988 as said teacher. 1989, I went up to Darren. Back in the day, we had to do a couple of years or more years in the country, then we could transfer back to the city. I did some time there. Then eventually in 2001, got involved in applying for deputies positions um, I apply. I wrote 67, 67 applications before I even got to an interview stage. Sounds like and me. I chat. Oh, far <laughs> out. Application. I hear people say, oh, I can't get a gig. How many have written for? Really? Is that all? Oh, I don't um, reckon. I, just, I, I'm embarrassed by my first 30, I reckon. Yeah, I'd agree with you. You don't realise <laughs> how bad you're writing. Look at yeah. it and go, far out. Mm. So you wrote- critical friends. Absolutely. So you wrote sort of 60 applications to become a deputy and then, and you finally got one through? I got a gig um, and it was, it was interesting because I said to Neil McNeil, who took me on at Ellenbrook Primary School as his deputy, I said, oh, so how, my application obviously got you through. And he said, your application wasn't much chop, but I saw something in you. Uh, I thought, well, that's nice to know. So, and he worked with me over my writing over the years, but he was the first person to give me an educational book. I hadn't read a book since I left educational book since I left uni in 1998. Uh, 1988. Uh, so he got me into education. He started to develop me as a leader. Um, it gave me a great number of opportunities. I, I've probably never worked so hard as when I worked under him as his deputy. Wow. But that experience enabled me to grow. He yeah. got me into ASIL. Um, ultimately, mm-hmm. obviously, that fellowship out of that in 19 was it 2019 or something 2014 um and neil was just he's still my professional mentor 
I did my master's because he encouraged me to do it. I finished my doctorate. I'm just waiting for that to come through. So that meeting with with Neil McNeil actually got me into leadership in a big way and I learned so much from him, the contacts I made and the reading that I did. So that was pretty much my journey. Head teacher in 88 and a classroom teacher in in the country. Became a, moved into teaching positions in Western Australia when I moved back, sorry, to Perth. And then from there went into the deputies role. In 2004, got my first principal's gig, which was a tap on the shoulder by Rose Moroz, the then district director, who actually asked me to go in and close the school down. So that was an interesting uh, thing to work through. I had to develop relationships with families and visited every family out there. So I learned very quickly to, to code switch and work with teachers and then work with families of different um, situations. Wow. And then this opportunity where I am at Dayton to open a school is my way of balancing out the fact in 2004 I was integral in starting the closing down procedure for a school. So I see this as a bit of yin, a yin and yang situation. Wow. It, it, it's super interesting. I just wanted to touch on one thing before you move on. Uh, what was it about Neil um, that was uh, um that was particularly uh, impactful about your time with him. Um, you mentioned a number of uh, times about his mentorship and his style and how he's become a, a lifelong friend and mentor, but but what was it about him? That that ability, was not so much an ability, he's very keen to develop and see other people grow. And one of the things he said to me, Matthew, when I first came in, he said, if you give me four years, I will support you in anything you want to do. So he was essentially asking me, give him four years of commitment. That said, during those four years, he was developing me and giving me opportunities to, to grow as a leader. And he was almost to the day, his word, I'll put me in a good word in with um, Rose Moroz when she rang to say, have you got anyone that could possibly take this role? And he said, yeah, Ray here would be capable of dealing, dealing with that situation. But just that ability to, to support people grow and, it's it's almost like that Kevin Bacon, four degrees of separation. Mm-hmm. There's so many people who Neil has had an influence in their career or lives, educationally and professionally, where you link it back to, to knowing Neil. And I can now say there's people I've helped grow because of my connection with Neil. So by default, he's got a connection to those people. Amazing. And it, it's that it's that of of building and belonging. And again, comes back to that that whole thing of Ubuntu. I am because we are. With Neil, I wouldn't be here. Without me, someone else wouldn't be here. So it's that it's that collective that mm. makes all the difference. Yeah, I, I think that's um, I, I think that's so incredibly important. Um, what do you think it took? What do you think four years? Why not two? Why not one? Why not three? Why not six? Do you think that says well, that, something? That, about how long it takes to to make an impacting change or a lasting change? Or what do you? Th- yeah. To bring about a change, I would argue, takes considerably longer. Yeah. But I think uh, I don't know what Neil's thinking was. In my thinking, four years was probably too short given the complexities of leadership and how contextual leadership can be. But it, it actually gave me a chance. Initially, when I was working with him, I had a, cl- I had a half day, half of the week I was in a classroom and the other half I was working as his, his deputy. So I was working in a classroom and the deputy working two roles, and that enabled me very quickly to understand, be very careful what you give classroom teachers and you ask them to do because they have lives outside of teaching as well. So I got a chance to have both feet in the camp. Mm-hmm. And it, in the work with Neil, Neil needed at least four years to get me to experience all those things and develop just 
little nuances in some of the things that I was doing and take some of the rough edges off. Because yeah. I would argue too, leadership is very much a maturity thing. As I've got older, I've got a little bit calmer. Things that bothered me when I was younger with possibly a Billy Burr short fuse sort of situation, you learn to just let it wash over you and go, just it's not going to end the world. Settle down. Let's move on. So that four years was probably a chance to, again, take some of that rough edges off and start to develop what I would call foundational leadership skills to build on in later life. Mm. I think that's um I think that's so incredibly important, Ray. And and looking back on that time in that that four years with Neil, um, and without going into sort of specifics, um, were there any mistakes that you made that you wish you could have undone, or any lessons that you learnt? Oh yeah, there are many times I made a co- an offhanded comment or um, yeah. made made a decision that I hadn't thought the way the whole way through. Another thing that Neil often said to me is, "That's great, you made that decision." But did you think of the roll-on effect of that decision, the domino? Um, so, yeah, there, there have been, and there still are occasionally, hindsight's a wonderful thing where I make a decision and re- and go, well, that probably wasn't the best decision, but based on the information I had at the time. And Neil also taught me as a leader, doing nothing is still doing something, yeah, which right. I wouldn't, I didn't think. But, yeah, if you don't make a decision, it's the same as, as making a decision because by not doing anything you're letting whatever happens continue to happen so it was those subtle things too Matthew that I picked up from him even though there were times where he had to go all right here we go I'll I'll talk you through what's just happened yeah I I think that's um that that's so incredibly important And, and what do you think that role of um of having that critical friend, um, having that mentor or, or having that ability to be able to reflect on your practice did uh, in terms of growing you as a leader? Was it instrumental? Uh, uh, yeah. How, why was that so important? Oh, look, it, it's instrument in, instrumental in the sense that Neil was, even though he was critical, it, was, it wasn't judgmental. There was always, I can see how you came to that and I can see why you've done that, but you need, you need to think beyond that. So, Again, another thing I learned from Neil, praise in public, criticise in private. So he would always back me up in a big, providing it wasn't a huge muck up, he would back me up stuff. But then he'd say, we need to have a talk. Don't do that again. So, okay, so another lesson I picked up from Neil, you know, praise people out in the public forum. But if you want to have a tough word or correct someone, bring them into a closed space where Mm. that's not shared with the the wider community. But the... They taught me too, and it's very hard. This is the probably the growing space, Matthew. There's a, a notion of feeling the pinch. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure here with the term, but if I if I say something to you or have a crack at you in some way, people tend to take that very personally. And a critical that critical friendship, that ability to not feel the pinch from my side, getting the reflective feedback is don't take this personally. Let's move, let's move outside of that. Let's look at what the problem was. It's not about you, it's about the actions. And that, that's very hard for people to do. It's something that's taken me a long time to mm. get that notion of moving, feeling the pinch. It's not about me. It's about what I've actually done. And we yeah. say that to kids with their behaviour. That's a trans, it's, it's not you I don't like. It's what you've chosen to do. And so the, the language still works. Yeah, I, I think that's so important, Ray. And I just wanted to ask, um, what? how do you respond when somebody gives you that feedback? Because I think that is so 
critical and i'm not just talking about you personally but when someone who is a critical friend is is giving you feedback or offering some suggestions and there is some kind of a relationship there how do you take that feedback on i've got better at it initially it was very hard Um, but again if you have that relationship with that person and, and that level of trust that is, I take it on in terms of, okay, this person said that because they think it's really important and I need to reflect on that. The other side of that is that the bit I just touched on their trust. There are people who would give me feedback or make a comment and it's like, you know what, I don't respect you as a leader. I don't respect you as a teacher. So your, and I've probably said this in a harsh way, but your criticism or feedback doesn't matter to me. I, I'm not taking any credence in that but someone who i trust someone who i respect someone who i value that holds so much more for me than someone who sits in the other camp so mm, nah, sorry and uh, yeah, i i think that's that's absolutely critical ray and something that I, I just wanted to ask you and this does not necessarily have to be in a, be out of your per, own personal experience yep. but what do you do if you, when well, I mean, we've all got bosses. I mean, I think some people might think that because you're a principal, you you don't have a boss, but I'm sure you've got them. Um, what do you do if um, someone who is your superior says something to you that you maybe don't disagree with or, or would like to challenge? How do we respectfully do that? Um, because obviously we need to make sure that we are maintaining relationships with people and working with people. So how do we, and like I said, this is not necessarily out of your own personal experience, but how do we, respectfully disagree or, or or have a conversation when we, when we feel that the challenge is unwarranted? That's actually an awesome question. I think it's a question that a lot of people either gloss over or forget about. There's, there's one primary thing that I think about is I'm, ha- I'm happy to have disagreements with people. So if my superior was in this office and um, in this, let's, let's go my director general, Lisa Rogers was in this office and talking to me and say, I want you to do this, and I disagreed with her. I would disagree with her, but once we leave this room, I'm doing what she's told me to do. It's a great but she point. knows knows I disagree with her, but I also respect the fact that she is my boss. She is my, and I have a lot of respect for Lisa. She's my boss. At the end of the day, once we leave the room, I'm 110 percent beside her. Yeah. But in the room. That's where I need to air my concerns. And it comes, there's a, I don't know if you've read a book called Crucial Conversations, quite an interesting book. Yeah. And that's that. It's something I also try to build within my team. We need to have these crucial conversations where you go, you know what? I don't think that's right. Obviously, if we're talking about where someone gives you criticism or stands up to you or or asks you to do something that's not right, then obviously you go, I'm sorry, that's just ethical wrong. But where it's you need to do this as part of your job, that's fine. I'll do that. Look, I'm not happy with it, but I will do it, and I'll do it to the best of my ability. And I won't have a chat behind my, behind your back. We've had that conversation in here. Let's just get on with it. But at least you know where I stand, and more importantly, and this is the bit that I think some people miss, why I stand for what I've just said. Yeah, I, I think that's that's incredibly important, Ray, and. and- why do you, and this may sound obvious, uh, and I'm, I'm sure Lisa is wonderful, uh, but um, what do you do if, uh, why is it important to have those discussions um, in a close environment and not continue them out into the staff room or not continue to to have these conversations once that person's gone? It may sound obvious, uh, but what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. What sort of uh, dangers does that breed? 
the, the first and most obvious danger is it removes the context of the conversation. Yeah. Like how often have you been, even you talk to your spouse, how often do you give her the entire background, blow for blow, this is what he said, this is what I said, this is what he said, this is what I said. You don't. You give them an abridged version. And more often than not, it's the abridged version that works in your favour. Yeah. You've got kids. They, they don't tell you everything. Oh, no. Mm. So yeah. th- that's the important thing. The other thing, too, if you start to do that, people stop talking to you. Yeah. My team, in my own context, let's bring it back to my personal leadership team, my team need to know that we have an open conversation so we can speak with candour and be right out there. But once we leave the room, we speak with one voice. Now, as a system, at a higher level with my regional, my district directors of education, my assistant directors of education, we can have those candid conversations. But once we move out into the public forum, we need to have that we speak with one voice. Otherwise, it starts to create dissent. And that's a danger when we're trying to bring about change or bring about um, support or bring about an initiative. Once we've got that dissent out there, there's a problem. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more, Ray. I think it's so incredibly important. Um, I want you to take you back to 2014, and I believe that was your first year as a principal. Is that correct? 2004 was my first year as a principal. Okay. So to that, my mistake. So 2014, though, you were named uh, Western Australian Primary Principal of the Year. Um, as yep. as teachers, we're traditionally not great at uh, tooting our own horns. Uh, but why uh, why do you think you received uh, that award, and and what did that involve? Because I had a great team. Um, I was aware that the the nomination had been put forward because they have to ask. You know, is this person happy to do this? So yeah, I am. Um, but at the same time, I was ve- I was. <sighs> Not so much humbled, mildly embarrassed by it. And again, don't get me wrong, it's a great accolade, but I am one person. I've achieved what I have because of everyone around me. If I didn't have a great team, if I didn't have the staff that I had, nothing that we did in the school would have been possible at the level that it was. So it was was a collection of people. And when I accepted the award, I made that, you know, we, I'd stand here on the shoulders of giants. There's a lot of people who've made this possible. So I turned it, in my head, I turned it around to I'm the face of all the work that's been done around. But I think it, it, the award came about because of the work that we've done within the school. Um, and I naturally say we've done in the school again. I have a vision. It's, I always think of the castle. I've dug a hole. You know, I, I've done something. There's a lot of people who, who around me, and I had other people digging holes, and I was the dad going, that's great, mate, dig another one. That's a, um, that's a lovely answer, Ray. I do want to push you slightly on that uh, and ask you, um, what do you think it was about your leadership that created those opportunities for your team to thrive? I know it's really difficult talking about the contributions that that we have made. Um, but obviously you would have set some of the, uh, the the cultural norms within that team and we talked about kind of radical candor and and so on and so forth. But what do you think your role was um, in building that team uh, to a position where they were so successful? Yeah, and no, I'm happy to, to be pushed on that. It's, uh, <laughs> it's for me it's a clear I had a clear vision and direction of where I wanted the school to go. Yeah. I not just 
where I want us to go, how we're actually going to do it. So here's the direction, and it's about getting people on board and getting the right people. It's a cliche, but getting not just the right people on the bus, but the right people on the bus in the right seats at that moment. Yeah. Yes, some people got off the and it wasn't so much because we clashed. It was more because they didn't believe in the direction we were, we were going. But by be, being very clear on what it was that we, I wanted the school to achieve and where I felt we could go, that set the tone for everyone. There was no ambiguity about what it was we were trying to achieve. What you see is what you get. Now, that sounds great. Don't get me wrong. I made some mistakes and I did upset some people along the way. But my line of where I stood in regard to that never wavered. So those people were able to see, yeah, he's actually saying that and he's he's living it and I, I get what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, there's that, that saying, what passes the standard you accept, that's something that we got built across the school. Yeah. There's so many things that that what I said actually became embodied and I was very much a big one for if we're going to make a rule or a policy, then we need to police it. And at, at some time staff would challenge me on that in in public forum, which I didn't bother. It didn't bother challenge me in a public forum, make sure you got information there. And my argument with was that if you're going to set a rule in place and you're not going to police it, don't have the rule. Because if we put a rule in place, you're mm. going to expect me to follow it up. So I can't be following up for Mrs. Smith if Mr. Smith is going to be lax on it. It's, yeah. There's no consistency. So it was about getting that consistency across the school, which is another thing people seem to like. Yeah. Um, Ray, on that, I mean, it's one thing to kind of cast a vision and say we're going this way. And, and how do you take people on that journey with you? Because... I think it's very easy to say where you want to go and, and and what you kind of see for the school. But how do you make sure that the right people are on the bus and you're moving in the right direction? Because as you mentioned, it's not you can't do it all on your own. You need a committed, unified team. So how on earth do you even do that? It's a very complicated question. But but how do you begin to move people in the right direction and get a, get buy in? Uh, with the chains rope and locking the bus door, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Look, yeah. We don't people tend not to buy into an organization, they buy into people. Mm. So they bought into what I was saying, they bought into me. But again, it comes back to putting those structures in place that enable people to stay on board. So it's great to say this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it. But not everyone has this that people were happy to be on it, but they don't have the skill set to enable them to do that. So now yeah. you, you, what you're asking me is, so what structures and processes do you have in place to make sure that that bus stays on track? So we had to look at instructional coaching. We had to look at um, a scope and sequence curriculum. So we'd look at intervention processes. We had to look at professional development for staff that may or may not be on board in terms of they don't have the skill set required to do what we're going to do. So there's a whole gambit of things we had to look at to ensure that that vision was actually able to be enacted enacted by the staff the term is collective efficacy was essentially what we're trying to build james nottingham talks beautifully around the notion of the learning pit and staff fall into the learning pit so we've got a school vision we make a change at some point someone's going to fall into the learning pit so what structures do we have in place to enable those staff to get out of very quickly and moving on peter dewitt talks about de-implementation uh, and, and collective leader efficacy, which is something we're working on with our leadership team at the moment, even though we haven't got a school proper. So we, again, I work very hard with my leadership team to ensure that not 
only did they hear my message, but they understood the message and they all knew what that messaging was in terms of what it actually looked like. And the yep. example I give there off, and it's, it's one I stole off a chap called, um, what's his name, John Fleming, when we, uh, serendipitously bumped into him in 2009. He'd say as a principal, they walk into a school and they go, we need to improve reading, and then they leave the staff room. Now, that's great, mm. but everyone in that room their own idea of how they're going to improve reading. And at the end of the year, the principal goes, we still have to improve reading. Well, that's because everyone's doing their own thing and there's no no synergy between what everyone's So it's it's about making sure you've got the supports and structures in place to keep everyone on the straight and narrow in terms of this is the way we're going, this is the support I'm giving you, this is how I'm going to support you, these are the resources you need. Those are the sorts of things that make sure we help everyone not just get on the bus but stay on the bus. Yeah, and I'm I'm just interested, uh, Ray, just because I'm one. I've been working in instructional rounds for many years um, across a number <laughs> of school districts. And um, what is it about? So, firstly, for those people that are not aware, what is instructional rounds, and why is it something okay. that you um, uh, both as a school and also individually are committed uh, to in terms of professional growth? Okay. In- instructional rounds for those that are unaware that the version I look at here is the one that came out of the medical profession where they the doctor takes his residence and says this is Mr Jones he presents with da 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 you know what do you think he's got so we use that and a, a pinch a bit it ties in beautifully with um what's his name Breakspeare's learning sprints right so it was we've we've brought in a new strategy into our school instruction rounds we're going to get a group of staff together a group of people and we're going to go into a classroom to see how that strategy is being used and whether it's being effective or not now it's not about judging the teacher it's about looking at the strategy right we've looked at that what was working well with that strategy what wasn't in that room let's go and have a look at the next room how was that being implemented there it then gives us the ability to go right it's working well in mrs smith's room potentially because of a b c and d Mm. It's not working room because we're missing A, B, C and D and it enables us then as a leadership group and as a, a um, as a staff to go, right, these are the things that are missing. Why is it working well here? And so it's it's almost like a way of doing an internal audit. The, it's easier to say, Matthew, but the hard bit for us was moving it away from looking at the teacher and teachers initially had a hard time separating it from coaching because yeah. they wanted feedback. But as soon as we give you feedback, we change what it is we're looking for. If I'm giving you feedback, now I have to watch you teaching rather than on the strategy itself. Yeah. And it shifts away from instructional rounds. We just found, I just found it and we found it very powerful in the way of assessing whether something was working or wasn't working and then try to find out why and do that deep dive into it. Yeah. Look, it's a process that I um, have used for many years. Uh, one of my teaching mentors is a lady called um, Annette Udall. And so she works in, I'll mention you, uh, mention your name in a Twitter chat afterwards. Um, and she is just doing an incredible work with instructional rounds in, in Sydney, where I'm based. Um, and it really yeah. is that, isn't it? It's that non-judgment, non-judgmental approach and quite a clinical approach to what is working, what isn't working. And in a really good way, it seems quite impersonal because it's not about um, assessing teacher competency against the Australian professional standards. It's looking at 
what is working in the classroom and what isn't. And so it's really lovely and really refreshing to hear that you have also had such a positive experience over in WA. Um, it's uh, yeah, really, really great to hear. Um, uh, Ray, would you mind just maybe spending a few moments talking about um, uh, the importance of kind of fostering those professional networks um, across schools? What does it look like uh, with you in WA? Um, how do you do that? How do you share practice amongst schools? Um, yeah, would you mind spending a few moments unpacking that? Yeah, I don't mind at all. I mean, interestingly enough, this is going to sound a bit odd. As a principal, or as a person, I actually don't like people. Um, and I don't mean that in a horrible way. I just find people really hard Yeah, uh, because there's no consistency. Right. So it's, it's something encouraged me to do in while I was working with him is you need to start networking you need to get out there and get other ideas because by networking it does two things one is it solidifies it either solidifies what it is you're doing to say that's a good thing or it exposes you to things that you may not have thought of that can strengthen what you're doing in yeah. 2009 was fortunate enough to bump into Dave Wanstall, who's now Director of Early Childhood with uh, Statewide Services, and Greg Sullivan, who's retired. Right. And we formed what was called the Ballager of Primary School, Dylanna Heights and Us. And awesome. three like-minded principals got together with their, with their associate principals and we created this coalition that developed a scoping Thanks. sequence that we're running at schools. But... The important thing about that is each school used that scope and sequence slightly differently. So each school oh, yeah. then became an a learning organisation within that network of schools. And it was a chance, again, for us to be able to say, well, this is working for me. And someone would go, well, it's not working in my school. Okay, why is that? So, again, it links loosely back to that instructional round thing. So what is it you're doing that I'm, I'm not obviously doing because we're not getting the bite? Um, so that, that chance to look at other ideas, the chance to share professions, so a chance for teachers to come and visit your school and observe practices in your classrooms and vice versa. We were able as three schools to run some fantastic PD. We spent months and months not just doing PD once but multiple times around assessment as for and of in terms of um, assessment, assessment practices we looked at reporting practices. We we looked at the science of reading. We got Louisa Motes over to do a lot of work with this. We got Dr. Lorraine Hammond involved. Um, we had Hollingsworth and ba um, Hollingsworth and Yabara come through the schools. John Fleming spent a lot of work time with our schools. So that collective enabled us to have a lot more power in terms of getting out and getting people in to strengthen those sorts of things that we were doing. But the Mate. short version of what I've just more people, more knowledge, more exposure. Yeah, that's uh, that's so incredibly important. And obviously, uh, we have, and especially in Western Australia, you have just come through a, a prolonged period of lockdown. Uh, we've only just recently been able to to go back and visit Western Australia from Sydney. Uh, what do you think um, have been some of the challenges and some of the opportunities in terms of forging those professional networks um, as a result of um, as a result of COVID? Are there some things that you are going to continue doing some things that you're going to chuck and some things that you're going to change yeah look probably one of the things that really came out of from my perspective not from the planet's perspective the use of zoom meetings that yeah. ability to actually connect with people um, it's always been there but people probably didn't use it as much as they could so if we're having a meeting it's you know it's a 45 minute drive before i get to the meeting case in point the other day 
we've got is a new school we're trying to set up with a network of schools for our phys ed and get a phys ed program running. No one could make the meeting because, but we could all jump online at eight o'clock, save travel time and communicate and share ideas without the need to actually be in the same room. Yeah. So for me, that that's been the biggest takeaway from from COVID in terms of um, communicating and, and networking. There were some things we missed out on, obviously, because various lockdowns and et cetera, we couldn't get out to things, so we lost a few of those services. But in terms of networking, I, I don't see too much coming out of the COVID space. Um, I see a lot of learnings that came out of COVID in the way that we work with kids um, and, and moving into the future, but I don't think we're going to – we're actually probably going to learn as much from the experience as we thought. Humans yeah. tend to go back to their own very quickly. We are definitely creatures of habit, aren't we? Um, Ray, I was just wondering, um, it would be amiss of me not to ask you uh, what it's like and what is involved in building a school from the ground up because you are in an incredibly privileged position where you get to decide things from the very foundational level in terms of what you want this school to look like. So what's that experience been like and where do you even uh, begin uh, uh, to start with such an immense project like that? It's it's very much a roller coaster ride in terms of emotions and experience. Obviously, you've got to win the position first, which is, which is a tough gig because um, – there may be in Western Australia, we probably get four to five schools a year being built. And one of those or two of those may be high schools. So maybe three primary schools a year. When you're looking at 800 or something schools plus aspirant principals, there's a lot of people that would, would love the opportunity to open a new school. So it's a highly competitive process. So winning it is a hard bit. And then you sit in the chair and you sit back and realise the immense task that you've got ahead of you. Now, there's nothing that I don't think a principal or any person could could not do in terms of they could cope with it. The hard bit and the emotional draining bit, and it was something that Rachel Air, my associate principal, pointed out the other day, is that every decision you make is an important decision because it will have an impact on what happens in the future. And that's the hard bit. You can't you can't just go, you know what, just do that. Because do that then becomes a huge problem later on. Working in the project management space is a new experience for me. We've got architectural drawings that I first got exposed to. Fortunately, my my father was an architectural draftsman, so they weren't French. I could actually understand what I was looking at. Right. But then working with department finance, working with builders, working with the community, working with all those sorts of things around steering groups to, to set up your uniforms, to develop your logo. All those things are hard work and you need you need to think about how that's going to happen. Fortunately, the host school that I'm with, Brabham, um, Arnica Blackmore's the principal here and she'd been through that process. So some of the templates that she had, she gave to me and I've used them as a way of scaffolding the things that we need to do across the school and shared that with my um, leadership team. That's the, And tracking things is another thing that's very hard and challenging. Again, when I was uh, in 2020, when COVID exploded on the planet, I got pulled in to work with the Department of Education as part of the incident management operations team. And then as a result of that was the health liaison officer between the department and the health, de- um, and, the health department and picked up this board of uh, to-do, progressing, blocked, completed. So we got a visual of all the things that we had to do. And as we did them, we moved those along so my whole team could see this is what's being done, this is what still has to be done. 
And I started that while I was by myself because I knew there were going to be things that I wouldn't be able to share with everyone because I would have forgotten it. But they could look up in the board and go, what's this? And I could backtrack, this comes from this. So everyone could see the visual of what had already been done and where we needed to go still. So there was things that that's, that's everything's probably the hardest part of building a new school. And obviously dealing with the shortfalls and materials, which are out of my scope, but I have to be aware of it because it may have an impact on how we open and where we house kids and all those sorts of things. Yeah. Look, um, Ray, the job uh, seems like an incredible privilege, but also immense. Um, And um, I was just wondering, what do you do to switch off? How do you, how do you look after yourself? Has it been something which, which has come easily or uh, something which is still a bit of a challenge? I run. Um, I run every day. Yeah, not as far as I used to, but I still run every day. Uh, at the end of this year, it'll be four years where I haven't missed a day. Do you? Um, it helped. I think we, we just have to stop on that a second, Ray. Hang on a second. So you run, you've run every single day for four days? Yeah, uh, for four years, yeah. Oh, for, sorry, four years. Um, what sort of distances are you doing? Uh, why on earth uh, are you doing that? Um, yeah. Question. It varies. So my base, my baseline is two kilometers. So that will be my minimum. I will go out and I'll run two k minimum. So it fluctuates anywhere from if it's been a really, really long day and I've I haven't got home till ten o'clock at night or something, I'll go for a two k run. So it varies from two kilometers through to sixteen kilometers. Nowhere near the sort of mileage I was doing back in my younger days, but it's just enough to wind down. It helps me sleep. Um, I watch a lot of the idiot box. Uh, more Netflix rather. Now that I've finished my master's, I've put a lot of energy into doing things at home, a lot of physical work, teaching, and as you would appreciate, Matthew, a lot of it's just mental stuff. You make 400 decisions in the first 10 minutes of being at school. So it's a chance working at home is just a chance to that physical and burn some of that physical energy. I read, I do most of the things. I occasionally go for a, a ride. I'm fortunate to have five acres and I've got two fire pits. Can't do it now because um, fire season, but I'll sit in front of the fire pit with the music in the shed, have a few beers and just watch the sunset. Um, I don't have too much trouble switching off. I can compartmentalise things. There are times where you might have an, a day where dealing with kids um, or, the, or trauma, that's a bit harder to shake, as you would appreciate. But yeah. generally I, I compartmentalise it, turn it off and then jump back in and off we go again. Amazing. Have there ever been uh, times, Ray, where you've thought, Jesus is a bit much. Um, I wonder if my time's done. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, there's, there's times in my previous school, a couple of schools I worked in were, were tough schools. Great staff, don't get me wrong, but just the, the communities, the, the kids and the trauma and, and the, the family, there were times where, you know what, well, I can't do this. Um, but, again, I love it. So that, that feeling only lasts, lasts for a little while. Uh, and there's times where it's very with a, a super team beside you, you can vent, you can have your vent in your closed room and then go out. I think the hardest thing coming back to sort of their times where you throw it in, the hardest thing as a principal is you, you sort of lose, and I don't mean you lose it, but you have to step away from the staff a little bit. As a, as a young teacher, I was happy to drink and celebrate with my staff, with my t- colleagues and do all the hoo-ha and, you know, be a completely loose unit. But as, as a principal, you're not just the leader, you're also the boss. So I don't think it's professional for my staff to see me as a loose unit. 
So I, you tend to lose that. I'll go to a staff function, I'll have a few drinks, I'll cheer everyone on, and then I'll leave. Um, and I, you sort of lose that a little bit once you get into the leadership, and I miss that, but that's just the nature of the beast. Yeah. I, uh, I, I think that's a very uh, wise point because you may have to have professional conversations with, with people that you may have got a little bit too friendly with. I mean, that's the reality of your job. Um, yep. Ray, I, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I, I just had a, a couple more questions. Um, if we were sitting down uh, having a coffee um, and I was just about, I was a graduate teacher and just about to set foot into the classroom for the first time, what advice would you give me so that I love my job in 10, 20, 30 years time? Yeah. First one would be relationships, relationships, relationships. Uh, I actually think teachers are the best paid actors in the world. My oldest son is pursuing acting. Um, and I've said, mate, get into teaching. You act every day. There's, <laughs> there's kids that you like, but you can't let the kids know that. So relationships form a connection with the kids. The other thing I would say is is find that I don't like the term work life balance because it's a very perfect it's a very fluctuating thing. There's there's times where I will work for hours and other times I won't, and people would see that that's see that as being unnatural or not a very balanced life. But it works for me. Is find that that separation between when you work and when you're teaching. Otherwise, you'll burn yourself out. You can't do it all at once. And then I would also encourage him to read, 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 which is very hard for a grad teacher to do because they are in a situation really of cognitive overload. No amount of training at university can prepare a teacher, a graduate teacher, for that first time when they've got their own classroom and they have to think about where the kids are sitting, um, who's done their homework, which parents are coming in, what their scope and sequence is for their curriculum, do they have what programs are in this school. There is so much for a grad teacher to to do and take on board. It would be beware of the cognitive overload, focus on one thing at a time. Yeah, take the blinkers off every now and then have a look, but get one thing right and move on. And to that end, relationships, relationships and classroom management structures are probably the two most important things you need to get in place first. Otherwise, it's too hard to teach. Yeah, and and as someone that was... Uh, the same conversation, uh, but I am about to step into a principalship for the first time. Would the advice be pretty similar? Yeah, that's the advice as a principal give, I would give to a person stepping up is how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Uh, something my leadership team are very familiar with is a concept that we developed called Air Force One. Are you familiar with that? No. So when we, I, when you talk about Air Force One, it's, it's a thought that I came up with. If the President of the United States' his plane is coming into land, the airspace is cleared and Air Force One has priority. So as, a new, as someone I was giving advice to as a new principal, it was, okay, you need to constantly think what your Air Force One is. There's plenty of other things going on and you can be very busy, but what is the priority for you at that time, at that moment that you need to get done? And if it's a priority, then everything else is pushed to the side. Now, the hard bit about Air Force, those priorities obviously shift day to day. You could have you could have what you deem to be Air Force One priority one right now, and then something explodes in the school. So you now shift, but you have to switch off from the other thing that was your priority because then, now this needs your all your energy. 
So it's that ability to focus on one thing and do it really well and focus on the things that matters. Uh, it would be also to trust your team and to delegate. There's nothing worse or quickest way to kill yourself as a principal is to micromanage. Um, back in the day when I first be- was a principal at West Beachborough, I did micromanage. There was a reason for that. I wanted structures in place. And then once I could see that people could understood the structures, then I stepped back and let them go with it. But it's trust your leadership team and trust those people around you. And if you can't trust those people around you, get rid of them. Ray. In uh, a nice way. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Ray, I am um, I'm so grateful that you would take the time to talk to me um, from all the way over in, in beautiful Perth. Um, and, and I just wanted to say thank you for everything that you're investing into our profession more broadly. And my hope is that there will be teachers um, and educators all over the world that would hear this conversation and would really get something out of it. So I I can't thank you enough for taking the time. Uh, It's a huge privilege uh, to speak with you. So uh, thank you. Oh, you're more than welcome, Matthew. I mean, teaching's the best gig in the world. I would encourage anyone to do it because that ability to have an impact. And at the start of this conversation, I spoke about two people that were teachers that had an impact on my life. And that has flowed through. So teaching is the best. It's hard, but it's the best profession in the world. And the fact that I get to play in the education domain in a school and affect um, kids' lives and other teachers' lives, it's an amazing experience. The fact that you've reached out, I'm humbled to have a conversation with you again. Given the list of people that you speak to, I'm, I'm stoked to have the opportunity to chat with you. So no, no thanks necessary. It's a pleasure. Amazing. The the pleasure is all mine, Ray. I look forward to uh, chatting to you at some point in the future. And uh, if I'm in WA, I'll come and buy you that coffee. I'll buy you a beer. How about that? Thanks, Ray. Take care. Bye. No worries. Take care, mate. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.